Hello and welcome to the Pain Cave. My name is Jay Friedman. I'm your host and I am very excited to be joined by a great friend of mine. He is a fixture on the West Coast ultra running and trail scene and really on the national ultra running scene for the better part of the last decade. He has nearly 100 ultramarathon finishes to his credit with wins and podiums at classic events such as the Hurt 100, uh, Cascade Crest, Quad Dipsy, White River, Sean O'Brien. He's a former top 10 finisher at the Western States 100. And he is the owner of the Y East Wolf Pack. He runs for, among others, uh, Columbia, Montreal, Trail Butter, Spring Energy, Dry Max, Squirrels Nut Butter, and Cherry Bundy. He is Yassine Daboon. Yassine, welcome to the Pain Cave. Hey, what's going on, Jay? Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for coming on, man. And I'm, I'm really psyched to have you. I know this has been a crazy bit of a whirlwind time for you and as much or if not more as anybody else. But, um, you know, I, I wanted to have you on uh, today, you know, A, just to catch up because it's been a while since yeah. I've seen you. It's great to, to have you on even even across the distance. But, uh, you know, with with where the country is at right now and, and everything that's been going on in the last couple of weeks, I wanted to talk to you to get some of your experiences as as an athlete of color or a, a, my, I guess a minority athlete in what we have as, you know, in our world or kind of our, our little niche is a, a very overwhelmingly white uh, predominant majority sport. Um, and I know you've spoken about this recently as, as many other athletes have. And, and I read your, uh, your post on uh, or in, in uh, Trail Runner Mag, was it? Yes, that was uh, fantastic, and and um, it talked to a lot of these issues, and that was kind of the inciting fact for for wanting me to have you on. For people who may not have seen your your post, tell us a little bit about your experience, just generally, and then even more specifically in the last few weeks, as as a lot of these issues have started to come to a head uh, as a minority athlete in, like I said, a, a sport that is overwhelmingly white. Totally. Um, well, so I would like to preface this talk by saying that, you know, one of the things that attracted me to the sport of trail and ultra running is the community aspect. So even though the sport and like you said, this niche sport is lacking racial and ethnic diversity, I've never really felt any like glaring racism like people have been so welcoming to me and that like I said the camaraderie of the sport is one of the reasons why I gravitated to to this sport and um but I will say over the last you know uh let's just say over the last three and a half years I felt a lot more kind of uh blatant racism in general as a human being mm -hmm. um uh and then, you know, I think it was just kind of boiling over to the point in our in our country that oh, I made a social media post a few weeks back, um, just citing some examples of some things that happened to me uh, two months ago, where um, somebody here in Portland called the police on me because I touched their car while I was parallel parking, uh, you know, and then I gave an example of two weeks ago when somebody... Um, yelled a, a racial slur to me in the post office, uh, referred to me as ISIS. And then uh, two, Out loud. two days, <laughs> yeah, in nice. front of many people. And uh, two, two days ago, um, prior to that, I was followed out of a store um, by like loss prevention security because I walked in and looked around the store with my mask on and um, I didn't purchase anything because they didn't have what I was looking for. And then I 
was followed out of the store by security because they thought maybe I stole something. So anyway, it was just a combination of those recent things that I've been kind of dealing with my whole life, but it just, uh, they were kind of within two months and in combination with everything that's going on in our country, I just got tired of just being silent about it. So mm -hmm. I made a, a, I made a post on social media that uh, a lot of people really were surprised and were shocked that I, that I experienced this. And I think that is part of the issue is that I think people, the main response I got was, Oh man, you're such a nice guy. Like how, if they would just get to know you, like they would realize who you are. I, and I'm, you know, my reaction to that is that's the whole point of, right. of, of racism is that it's these preconceived opinions based on appearance. Um, so anyway, um, you know, maybe 30 people shared my post on Facebook or something like that. And I think it, uh, made the radar of trail runner magazine. And I was reached out to by them, um, asking because I'm one of the only people of color in our sport, <laughs> not <laughs> one of the only, but, um, you know, there's a very small percentage of people of color in our sport. Uh, they asked me to write an article like, t uh, talking about that. So, uh, I can't take full credit for the article. My very smart wife helped me a little <laughs> bit. So, <laughs> um, but you know, like they say behind every man is a strong woman. So, um, but, uh, yeah, just, you know, I just really wanted to share some of my experience, strength and hope. And again, uh, uh, I have dealt with racism my whole life uh, growing up in Pennsylvania and uh, living through middle school and uh, part of high school in a very uh, small 99.5% um, white town. Mm -hmm. uh, and then unfortunately, that's just uh, that was just my reality of, you know, you can't help the cards you're dealt. And that's where I grew up. Uh, and then I I ended up living in a few other places in this country. And then, um, you know, I got into the trail running scene and honestly, I mean, I just feel like I was kind of desensitized to it. I think a lot of people of color just get thick skin or, you know, like we don't react so much to the microaggressions that may happen on a regular basis. Right. It just kind of, you know, it just kind of sucks and just kind of, you just keep on moving past it because you can't get bogged down by every single little thing. Um, but yeah, like I said, you know, the trail running scene, it's def it was definitely, you know, the running scene in general, like I started off in Ithaca and that's where I met you, I yep. believe for the first time. Right. Yep. Yeah. So I lived in Ithaca from, you know, like Oh four to Oh nine. Mm -hmm. And that's when I started getting into the running scene and, um, you know, that's where I started realizing like, yeah, this is a mostly white sport. And even then, as I got into trail and ultra running even more so. Right. And so, yeah. So, um, I don't know. I mean, I'm not complaining because I love the trail and ultra running community. It's done so much for me. I've experienced the very best this community and sport has to offer. I've been able to travel the world and compete in races and go to some amazing beautiful places, make, make some of the best friends that I have, uh, you know, including you and everybody on the East coast and <laughs> everybody out here uh, everywhere. I mean, we're all, I feel like we're all part of the same tribe. I mean, I, I, 
often before, you know, COVID would have people that I didn't even know would reach out to me and they're like, Hey, I'm coming through Portland. Like, sure. You know, and I would invite them to our, our group run. And like, next thing you know, we're all hanging out afterwards, having, you know, food and drinks after the run and we're all friends. Right. right. And, you know, and then we're into friends and that's what it's all about. Or I've even put people up in my home when they, you know, I don't even know them Sure, staying in my spare, spare bedroom, you know, that's the ultra running scene. But, you know, like I've been saying before too, like racism and lack of diversity are not the same thing, you know, just because right. they're, as a lack of racial diversity in our sport doesn't mean it's a racist sport. Right. Um, but, but it, but uh, it's the kind of thing where it, it has the potential to breed intolerance. If you, uh, you know, if, if steps, you know, aren't taken to address or if at least if it's something that we're not aware of and, and kind of, you know, working our way through potential issues. Um, and, yeah. and, you know, it's something that, you know, ideally would be addressed and in, in, it would be great to get more people of color and more minorities into the sport. And that is something I want to talk about in a little bit, uh, briefly. Yeah. Um, your, your athletic background when you were younger, you grew up, I mean, you're, you're a tall guy, you grew up playing basketball. That's obviously a sport that, um, you know, has a great deal more racial variety right. to it. Um, did you experience issues at that time as well? It's funny uh, because I went to high school in Orlando, Florida, and I went from being <laughs> the new like home, a, the new uh, home of the NBA, actually. <laughs> exactly. I know. I know. I'm excited about that. Um, yeah. It, you know, it was just kind of one culture shock after another for me, really. It's like I went from a city in Pennsylvania, which was the third biggest city uh, in PA behind Philly and Pittsburgh at the time. Um, that's where I lived up until fifth grade. So I had a lot of black friends, a lot of people of color lived, you know, my school was actually right next to the projects actually. And, um, then when I moved, when my mom got this opportunity to move to rural Pennsylvania for a loan forgiveness program, uh, for her, she became a teacher mm -hmm. and they, they needed a French teacher out there. And, uh, rural Pennsylvania, she decided to, she was a single mom, three kids decided like, got to take this opportunity, don't have to pay back my loans, got a job, start my career. Maybe it's a better place to grow up. You know, she thought she was doing the best she could at that time. Sure. I'm not blaming her for anything, you know. Um, and uh, we moved out there and, you know, she told me since since then and since this, since I've been kind of going on some podcasts and stuff, she had told me since then that uh, the principal of the school that um, – so she asked, one of the questions she asked the principal of the school when she got the job was, you know, hey, my kids are of Moroccan descent, like, because uh, my mom's white, blonde right. hair, right. and my, dad, my dad's dark, right. and so she's like, are my kids going to have any problems being here? And, you know, the principal's like, oh, they'll be fine. And... um yeah, we definitely had a different experience than that. <laughs> At least I could speak for myself. Um, uh, so like I said, I was going to sixth grade and that was the first time I really experienced racism uh, in that small town being called every racial slur you can imagine. Um, and uh, I, you know, I didn't know how to handle that. So as uh, that time for all of us, I'm sure you could probably relate to this, but like sixth grade is a weird time, right? Sure. You're like, 
you're like trying to figure out who you are and your puberty is happening and right. all these social social structures are I had moved to a new town where, you know, people were afraid to touch me and things like that. Like it was weird, God. man. It was just really weird. It was like going back in time and um and there was nobody that looked like me. And so I dealt with that by like acting out. I started uh, you know, stealing and doing crazy shit and I was just a wild child and that's how I got accepted by other people was uh you know, starting to use tobacco products. Mm-hmm. Uh, smoking in like seventh grade, mm-hmm. and, you know, and then eventually quickly after that led to alcohol. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that's something you see that goes hand in hand with people that are minorities or that are dealing with racism is they, they turn to substance use and substance addiction because it, is that, that because numbs it, it all out. Yeah. Okay. So it, it's it's kind of it's partly escapism and then partly, like you say, almost to to have some sort of identity that you can cling to that you know may make sense to other people. Yeah. Totally. There's a it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's definitely um, you know it's uh, call it self medication if you will. Sure. Um, uh, you know, and at that time uh, that just fanned the fire and added fuel to the fire. And mm-hmm. my mom eventually, uh, eventually, uh, you know, I started hitting like 15 years old and I started getting, you know, bigger and stronger. And my mom just couldn't control me anymore. Like mm-hmm. she had three kids by herself and, you know, my brother's two years younger than me and my sister's another two years younger than him. And yeah, it was just a lot for a single mom and I was out of control. I was coming home at nighttime, at, you know, in eighth grade, you know, <laughs> God. <laughs> Yeah, stuff like that and being like passed out drunk and, you know, alcohol poisoning and things like that. So finally she just got, she just couldn't handle it anymore and I don't blame her. And so my father had been living in Orlando. So she had sent me down there um, to live with him, try Mm -hmm. to get a male presence in my life. And uh, yeah. And then again, that was just another culture shock. I went from being a really good basketball player up in Pennsylvania, like I said, a big fish in a small pond to going to a six A school in Orlando in the heart of heart of Orlando. Wow. Where I walked I walked into the gym and like tenth graders are like, you know, turn around, drop step, dunk <laughs> with two hands. You know. Man child. Just man child. Yeah. And I was just like, what? I'm like, okay, I'm not the starting star point guard anymore. Uh, <laughs> it was a huge wake up call. I mean, we, we played against Vince Carter, who was uh, down at uh, D- Daytona Beach mainland. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. He, you know, he was the um, state, his team, Daytona mainland was, uh, they won the state championship uh, a couple years when I was down there. And yeah, we played against Vince and, you know, I was just like, I called my brother who was up in Pennsylvania that night after we played him. And I'm like, dude, remember this name, Vince Carter. <laughs> wow. He's definitely going pro. Yeah. And it's funny. He he actually just retired uh, yeah. a couple weeks ago. Yeah. I saw that. I saw that. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. So that was it. That was a huge culture shock for me too. So, but again, like I look back at my photos from being on that team, on that basketball team, yeah. I was the o- only person, one of I was one of two or three that were the old, like not like dark black. Oh wow! Okay, yeah. So, so, so that, I, I kind of went one from extreme to the other. So that wasn't as much of a refuge as it might have been the just from right, like you say, the other way. 
uh, <laughs> yeah. be, being an outsider in that perspective. Did you feel that also? Sometimes. Yeah, yeah I did. Sometimes I did feel that. And um, yeah, it's just a weird kind of pendulum swing. Yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then I ended up kind of like, um, you know, ended up making my way back up to Pennsylvania for a year or so. And I actually played at a small college up there for a year and, um, yeah, definitely back in Pennsylvania and definitely back to experiencing, um, you know, I went to this school in central Pennsylvania, the division three school. So it's a small college that mm -hmm. I played at. And there was like literally like two or three black kids in the whole school. In the whole school. Yeah. 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 In the whole, in the whole college. And so again, it was right back there. And, um, and then I ended up moving out to Colorado because I was just so tired of, uh, of everything. Um, my brother was living out there at the time and I moved out to Colorado and, and that was great. I had a good time living out in Colorado. I feel like I've very experienced it. But um, my substance addiction just really started getting more serious and serious. And then in like 2004, early 2004, I uh, basically really hit a bottom and um, in, you know, inside and out, I, I kind of burned every bridge. And, you know, most people that recover from substance addiction realize that, you know, once they've burned every house on the block, then they finally are faced with a decision of like, I've got to do something now because I've got nothing else right. or I'm going to end up in one of three places, jails, institutions, or dead. Right. That's, that's the reality of it is that's where people with substance addiction end up if they don't change their lives. And so, uh, luckily I, I moved back to, I moved to Ithaca mm -hmm. where I had family and I, um, that's where I, uh, began my, my journey of recovery and you know within the first six months of, of sobriety i was suggested that i um do this triathlon and i was just like okay sounds good <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, i i was something for me to focus on right. and i really uh connected i needed that and connected with that framework and structure and mm -hmm. i trained for my first triathlon and uh that led to road running and that's when I met Ian Golden, mm -hmm. as you know, uh, became a close friend of mine and uh, heard about him attempting these ultra marathons. And I started running trails with Ian and my, my other friends. And that's where, you know, the uh, the love of, of our sport was was born mm -hmm. was in the, the trails of Ithaca. And one thing led to another. I started becoming a better runner. I started uh, figuring out things. And, uh, like I said, the community, uh, the running community, the trail running and ultra running community, uh, really welcomed me in and, you know, and I didn't really like, it was noticeable that it was very white, but I didn't like really, I, at that point in my life, I was just desperate to like grasp on to anything. Like I needed something right. in my life. So I, I wasn't focusing on that. Right. Like, yeah. It was no, it was noticeable, but like, I didn't care, man. I was like, I found my people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. And as a sport, so, I mean, yeah. I've, I've talked to people about this on the show before. I mean, the, the crossover between uh, folks who have battled addiction and then uh, find, you know, some sort of, of relief or community sense of community in, in our sport yeah. is uh, it's a, a list that, you know, just is, is very long and <laughs> distinguished, I should say. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's not unusual. You, you say, I mean, 
it, you know, we, we talk a lot about how great the community is and, and we're lucky in some ways and in other ways, you know, we've self-selected, you know, to be in this group and, you know, to, to find, like you said, a common tribe and that sort of thing. But right, it, it's, it's still, it's still a very homogenous, uh, group. Although, I mean, fortunately a homogenous group of, of mostly great people, but, but it's still a, totally. a very homo- homogenous group. So, yeah. um, I, I, I'd be, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I'd be surprised if you experienced, um, uh, you know, problems in terms of, of overt racism while at races or while interacting with, with uh, folks in our community, because I just don't, you know, I, I'd have a hard time imagining that from just the, the, the people that I know and that we've met in, in, in common. But, you know, yeah. it, it, is a, it is a niche sport. It's a niche community in the greater sense of, of the society. Um, you know, have you run into problems out training? Have you felt unsafe in, in certain areas, like out on the road by yourself? Because that's something that we've seen, uh, you know, obviously down in Georgia with the, the terrible mm. events that happened there last month. And, you know, mm. that's a thing that, that people, you know, obviously women have, have reported, folks of color. And I, I was wondering if you've had, uh, you know, negative experiences from that standpoint. Yeah, um, so yes, to, to agree with you, I have not experienced like overt racism within like as runners, so right. to speak. Um, uh, not, nothing like that. The great people that, uh, you know, are in our sport. So I haven't really felt that. Um, but I have one thing that I've noticed, uh, kind of a common denominator of out of all the places I've lived, Pennsylvania, New York State, Florida. Colorado and now Oregon is that when you start getting outside of the urban areas mm-hmm. there, it's all very similar. You know, <laughs> I mean, you get outside of Florida. I mean, there are some scary places in Florida. Right. Um, it's the same with Colorado <laughs> and, and Oregon where I live now, you know, I've lived in Oregon longer than I've lived in any other place. Um, and so to answer your question, yes, I have experienced things, um, but it hasn't, been from the running community it's more about mm-hmm. like uh you know i was running in uh the penhody 100 miler um mm-hmm. and i i did i did that race with no crew or no pacers and i was at it was in alabama mm-hmm. and i was i was at mile 80 something uh and i was running down a dirt road and i actually had my headphones in listening to music and i was you know at mile 80 something so i was very tired it was sure nighttime. And all of a sudden I started hearing like people cheering, what I thought was people cheering. And all of a sudden I, I started getting louder and I realized it was a pickup truck coming up the road. Oh, and it was people yelling out, yeah, and it was scary. Yeah. It was a pickup truck full of young men yelling expletives out the window. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I heard a few choice words there um and luckily just as they were driving past me um the course turned me back into the forest into the trail oh man so i was able to go back into the forest but yeah it was it was a little scary and you know i have people i've had people kind of like kind of nudge me off the road with their cars a little bit Mm -hmm. like uh flip me off you know things like that um you know but uh you know, and there are times when I go out to rural Oregon and to the map, like to these small towns and areas where, you know, there are great trails and getting out access to the mountains where, yeah, I do feel a little, people are staring at you mm-hmm. or I feel like a little just kind of, 
microaggression, mm-hmm. um, you know, talking to people and you know, they, they're like, what's your name? You know, or mm. something like that. Yeah. Or, you know, yeah. you know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yahoo. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Stuff like that. <laughs> um, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, kind of, I don't want to say solutions because that, that implies that there, you know, that there are solutions and, and you know, yeah. and some, some of these things are, are ingrained problems. Not that I want to be defeatist and say we can't solve things, but, um, yeah. you know, there, there are certain things, there, there are certain limits to what, you know, we as individuals can do and what we as a community can do. But uh, I do want to talk a little bit about where the community goes and and what role we can play in that. Talking in terms of increasing inclusivity, you know, we mm-hmm. when when we you know I feel like when we talk about sports that are predominantly white, uh, you know, traditionally white, uh, golf, uh, tennis, um, you know, hockey, it, it, hockey exactly, and it's soccer in this country, although you know, not not worldwide. You know, it, these are sports with a traditionally high barrier to entry. You know, generally financial exactly, and right, that sort right. of thing. You know, running, trail running, ultra running—that shouldn't be the case, um, at right. least from a financial perspective. For 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 mm-hmm. you know, folks growing up, you know, regardless of where you're growing up, your social socioeconomic status. What what are the barriers to entry that uh, you know beyond the financial that that we're running into that is that are keeping. Uh, you know, people of color, people of minority uh, race from from joining. Is it is it a lack of role models? Like we just don't you, you don't see people doing it, and therefore it just doesn't occur to you. Or, or are there other things that I'm that we're not kind of accounting for? I think that uh, is one of the one of the reasons. Mm-hmm. I think you know, people, uh, young people of color, don't see people that look like them that are doing it. Right, right off the bat, it's just like. And so it's just uh, not a, a white, thing that you do. That's a white, right? white, white person's sport. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, it's like, um, but you know, they want to they want to be more like LeBron James sure. or uh, you know people they see playing football or basketball or uh, or baseball or you know some of these more sports that are more diverse. Um, you know, it's it's funny because I actually had a call yesterday with uh, somebody from the Finger Lakes Runners Club, and we were talking about the same thing. It's like, well, even like track and field, like there are a lot of like sprinters and stuff that are, sure, you know, black, and uh, but yet they they've been having a hard time getting you know people of color to their track meets and things mm-hmm. like that. So why why is it? And like you said, it's the financial part can't always be. It's like you really just need a pair of shoes, really. Right. It's like, you know, if there's entry fees, he's like, you know, they've even said, hey, we've even given free entry fees. So for me, um, what I can speak to my own personal experience and like I, I don't have all the answers. Um, uh, I will say one of the be- one of the reasons I love the sport so much is because of the intrinsic rewards that we get. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like I, I win a race. You know, people are like, what did you win? And it's like, I, I got a belt buckle right, or a hat, right. you know, it's a, like a pie. It's not, it's, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I actually won a pie at a race. Well, <laughs> I know. And I was so happy about it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was just like, yes, it was like Thanksgiving time. I was like, I want a big apple pie. Yeah. Um, so really, you know, if somebody would have told me, you know, when I was young that like, hey, the benefits you're going to get from this 
are not so much about external benefits, mm-hmm. but it's, you're going to feel good. You're going to feel connected. You're going to feel confident. You know, like if somebody told me that I'd be like, yeah, no, like I'm not interested in that. Right. So for me, I had to experience that. And I had to, you know, like I said, my experience was a little bit different because I was really turning my life around and I was desperate to, to grasp onto something. But, um, so that, is my theory and this is what I'm doing in my little corner here in Portland, Oregon, mm-hmm. is that I'm trying to get kids started early. And I'm not trying to turn kids into ultra runners, mm-hmm. but I'm really trying to instill this connection with getting out into nature mm-hmm. because not only for kids but for every human, it's I feel like something deeply embedded in our genome mm-hmm. is like when we go out into the forest, when we go out into nature, our everything gets kind of reset right. and we are able to process things. We're able to process life. We're able to be more compassionate. We are able to have great ideas and we overcome these obstacles, so to speak, and we conquer them and we feel better about ourselves mm-hmm. and we feel it trickles into other areas of our lives. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I've been working with kids here in Oregon um, taking them out, uh, work at my daughter's uh, school part-time and three days a week, take kids out into the forest trail running. I have a summer camp that is a trail running and forest skills summer camp. Oh, that's awesome. Friday. Yeah, we did that a couple of years ago and it's been a great success and we're hoping to have it again this year. And, you know, it's been really heartwarming because, uh, ever since I did the, the ginger runner, uh, live uh, show, um, multiple people have reached out to me and said like, hey, I'm putting my money where my mouth is and I want to pay for kids scholarships camp. Oh, that's camp. great. Yeah. That's so, really like, great. I've literally already gotten like three, um, I've already gotten like a thousand dollars towards like scholarships for kids. Oh, that's just awesome. In the last, last couple days because people, I, I think people are inherently good, you know, want to help. Yeah. I think, you know, I think especially in the running community and they don't want to just do like a, a Twitter rant and then moving on to the next thing. Or like, I think we're all starting to realize that like we need to be conscious, more conscious about this issue right. that we have in our country. And we don't need to just, we need to like do more than like talk about it talking about it and being conscious about it is a great start, but we also need to start taking action. Mm -hmm. And how are we going to, what are we going to do to like, what are the action items we're going to do to like change this? Whether that's from like policy and laws all the way down to, um, you know, how can I make a payment to get these groups of kids with the people that look like them that are going to guide them to this and maybe this is going to be an, an integral part of their life you right know? right and so that's that's kind of what i'm i'm focusing on now is uh inviting people to do the camp um you know we have uh this local uh series it's called the portland trail series mm-hmm. which is like on wednesday nights and they're like uh anywhere between like four and seven mile races in the four in the trails mm-hmm and starting to invite, you know, people of color to those races and, you know, and mm-hmm. just introducing them to that and 
letting them experience the sense of community and all the benefits that we get from trail running and ultra running. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. What what role do you see for kind of the institutions of our sport in terms of kind of outreach or becoming better partners with minority athletes, be that, you know, race directors or, or the big races, uh, sponsors, you know, how, how can how can they kind of help with this process? I think we just, they and we, because I'm also a sponsor of a lot of the races mm-hmm. my company is, and I think we need to actively, like, seek out and like go to these communities or to these groups, you know, like, like for instance, um, in Ithaca, there's the, uh, the, the GAC is where they have a lot of, uh, like the greater Ithaca athletic club mm-hmm. that has a lot of, um, um, uh, you know, I don't know if it's underprivileged kids or people of color, mm-hmm. diverse communities. And so the, the track club would go to them and say, hey, you know, you guys are all invited to um, to these track meets. But I think I think it really what it needs too is some like almost like some promoters or some like some activators. Mm-hmm. Like if some like some like some white guy is coming to the group and saying like, come on, come join our track meet. I don't think it's going to be as powerful. But like if you know somebody like Joe Gray in right. our sport, like goes in there and like runs with these kids and like, Hey, you guys, you know, you should come to the, to the track meet, you know, it's different. So right. I think it's going to take, it's going to take, um, we're going to have to make it seem cool. We're going to have to make it seem fun and mm-hmm. we're going to have to make, and we're going to have to show people of color that there are people of color doing this, you know, right. and have some good promotion of it. And I think, you know, if it's not like all people of color are, uh, can't afford it um but if there are opportunities for race directors and organizations to offer you know x amount of spots you know at at a discount to these certain groups or i think that would be a great move too yeah to make it uh, make it more accessible and easier things like that you mentioned Joe. He's obviously a great champion and has been a great advocate for uh, equality and, and uh, racial justice. He, he mentioned recently how he has felt in the past, um, uh, I think, uh, anxious about speaking out on some of these issues for fear of loss of sponsors or, you know, uh, sponsors backing either backing away or not extending an offer, you know, based on what may be I guess perceived as controversial or or something like that. Is that something that you can relate to from that perspective? Being afraid to kind of speak your mind necessarily, you know, for for concerns over sponsorship opportunities. No, not for me. Yeah. I don't. I don't. I don't care. I um. I decided a few years ago because I was. I used to be very private about my substance. Uh, my past with mm-hmm. substance addiction. Like people just used to not know I was very private. I was 10 years sober and, you know, I still was private about it. And, uh, at a certain point I just decided I, I couldn't remember who I told or who I didn't. And I'm just, <laughs> why am I hiding this? This is, this is part of who I am. This is my story. And I can also help people mm-hmm. by being more of an, an open book or a fishbowl, so to speak. And so I just decided that I was going to be just completely open and honest and speak up and speak my heart. And, uh, uh, I, I'm not on the same level as Joe, so maybe he's probably making a lot more money than I am. <laughs> so maybe it's not <laughs> not as important for me. But uh, um, I will say that 
that did not cross my mind Mm -hmm. when I decided to speak out about this. And if some company doesn't want to support me by, uh, because of the things that I spoke out about, then, then I don't want to be connected with them either. Right. Um, and so I will say, uh, I just got an email last night from one of the top people at Columbia Mm -hmm. who, who, um, is also a ultra runner, but he's also one of like the top people in the company. Mm Mm-hmm. And he sent me a private email and a personal email and said, like, thank you for being such a great ambassador. Yeah, that's We're great. So lucky to ha- lucky to have you. And I saw your Trail Runner magazine article and he just like, uh, he like kudos to you. And he like invited me over for like a barbecue at his place when we can get back together. Oh, that's great. And I was I was really, really touched by that. And I'm really touched by, you know, companies that are um, speaking out and um you know, taking action and, and doing things to, to to shine light on this and the, to um, to show solidarity. Right. 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 That's but, great. That's great. That's a good question, though. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I know this, you know, obviously has been a, a difficult time for everybody. I'm sure you're tired of being uh, kind of one of the five go to people in the sport for, <laughs> you know, everybody coming up to you and saying, what can we do? I, I was listening to yeah, a, yeah. a podcast earlier today with uh, Jamel Hill, who used to you know be on ESPN and. She said, you know, I've, I've, I've never heard from so many well-meaning white folk in the last, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's just, uh, yeah, so I, I um, you know, but, you know, us well-meaning white folk are, are out here and, and, you know, the question that we keep asking and is, you know, what do we do? What is our role, you know, in, in this, in, in kind of moving our society along and, in, in, you know, bringing justice and, and equality or at least a, a more just and, and equal footing in our society? What can you speak to that in terms of, you know, yeah. what, what can we do? I mean, you, you mentioned, you know, it. financially, um, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And, and I guess, right. Just talking and that sort of thing. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. what, what role is there for us here? Yeah, I think, uh, I think it's great. I think, yeah, first of all, I will relate, uh, to Janelle by saying that, like I have, I got a little taste of what it's like to be famous. Like I was getting, uh, you know, an email from the New York times, ginger runner, you Mario Frioli, like all of a sudden I'm like, Whoa, like this, I need an, I need an agent. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> um, um, it was very flattering, but, uh, no, I think it's, I think you are doing it. Like there are a lot of people that I feel like, feel so awkward about it or feel maybe helpless about it that are in your shoes that right. are just like, well, there's nothing like, I don't want to, I don't want to open that can of worms. I don't want to get it involved. There's not, I don't, I don't think there's really anything I can do. So I'm just going to be silent and not, I'll let other people do that. Right. And I think it's, uh, you know, I read something that I mentioned um, and you know, with ginger runner is that, you know, I saw something recently that said, you know, some people are out on the front lines protesting. Some people are making social media posts. Some people are donating silently. Some people, um, you know, and it gave all these examples of what different styles of people are doing. But I think the main point is you do something and you keep your foot on the gas because, um, I heard, uh, something on NPR once that, most American, the majority of Americans have a 10 day memory. Wow. We have a 10 day memory. Right. Because 10 days from now, something else is going to happen. Especially with this fucking administration. Yeah. 
we're going to be redirected and then all of a sudden we're going to forget about everything. So I think we just need to keep our foot on the gas. You, people like you that have a platform, that have a following, that have, um, you're doing it. Right. You're having these conversations. You're spreading this type of movement around and it's starting to catch fire because I'm seeing things already that are happening. That stuff is changing. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, I mean, that's how it happens. That's yeah. how revolutions happen. You yeah. Know? And, um, and so I'm a power to the people, man. I think, uh, <laughs> critical mass, man, critical mass yeah. is, is, is what I'm thinking about. You yeah. Know? No, it does seem to have a momentum that it has not had in, in certainly in my lifetime. Um, and, you know, I, I see people drawing comparisons to the 60s and, I, you know, I certainly don't mm-hmm. know if we're there yet, but um, it does feel like mm-hmm. this is a, a crucial time and that we do need to, like you say, foot on the gas and, and really take advantage of whatever movement we've got now because, um, yeah. yeah, memories are short. So um, I think this is this is an interesting time, too, because I think I remember like when the Rodney King riots were mm-hmm. happening and 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 that was a very kind of a tense time as well. But the difference is we didn't have podcasts. Mm-hmm. Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, like now we've got this, like this, this, uh, these channels to relay data and information so quickly, right? Mm-hmm. That like, even, even if government agencies are trying to take stuff down because it doesn't fit with their, you know, like it's misinformation, right? <laughs> if they're t- taking stuff down, there's still so much information being transmitted and spread globally. And I think that's a powerful tool. And I think people that have like a lot of money and power can are now like faced with the opportunity, like, Hey, am I going to just like sit back with all my stacks of money and do nothing? Mm -hmm. Or am I, or am I going to try to make a difference? Like, I mean, like not to call out like, you know, like Michael Jordan and, but like he's been silent for so long and like through so many different decades of like, and right. now, finally, I saw that, you know, the Jordans are donating like millions of yeah. dollars. Yeah. And, like, you know, I mean, there's other I, I was listening to an interview recently that like was saying like Jay-Z and Beyonce have the opportunity to, to like do more than like MLK did back in the day, you know, because of how like loaded they are and how much how much of a following, and how much influence they have. Right. And it's um, easier. And I, I just, right. I, it's easier with social media I, now to get directly to your audience in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, I think, you know, there's definitely a movement happening and I think people are really starting to put their money where their mouth is and trying to, we want to, you know, it's, it's almost like a perfect storm too, with like this pandemic and uh, everything with the racial tensions that like, it's almost like expediting stuff, right? (laughs) It's like people want to get back to feeling like human again right like we just feel like this pit in our stomach and it's like it's not sustainable that's like i mean even for me as an athlete as a runner i'm like sleeping like five hours a night and it's anxiety ridden yeah yeah uh, like that's not sustainable especially if you're running like 60 70 80 miles a week too you know sure for sure let's end on a happier note tell us a little bit about why you (laughs) pack and uh what you guys are doing out in, in portland Oh, thank you. Um, so yeah, we started our business back in 2012. Uh, we do coaching, uh, personalized training plans. Uh, we do like fitness classes. Mm-hmm. I actually just got done leading a fitness class for a, for a zoo on a zoom <laughs> fitness <laughs> class, which has been kind of weird. 
but uh, before COVID, we did uh, corporate wellness. Mm-hmm. So that was a big man of our main revenue streams is going into offices and doing on-site fitness, functional fitness classes, yoga classes. Um, we do coaching and then we do like guided trips, but we're all about like the community here locally. So mm-hmm. we do sponsor, sponsor races. We do aid stations. Mm-hmm. We do uh, like retreats and like uh, guided trips, you know, to the Grand Canyon, things like that. Awesome. Um, so yeah, check us out at yeastwolfpack.com. It's W-Y-E-A-S-T wolfpack.com. Yeast is the Native American name for mm-hmm. Mount Hood. Yeah. Exactly. And so that was part of the reason we wanted to name our business that was to show our kind of pay homage and respect to the people that were, you know, on this land before us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll link to that in the in the show notes. And, and also, if you could send me a link for where people can donate yeah. to the camp that you were speaking about before, hopefully we'll get some people in on that. Um, before well, I let you, you go. Yeah, yeah. Before I let you go, we're going to do the dumb game that I play with everybody. We're going to play Desert Island Picks. Uh, I did give you a little uh, bit of advance warning, so you can't complain. Oh, yes. uh, you're nope. going to go to a desert island for one year. You get to bring one book, one album, one food. And we usually say one beer, but you know, any beverage is fine, obviously. All um, right. What do you bring into a desert island for a year? All right. Sounds good. So I'll bring the big book with me um the big blue book those of you who know that what that is uh the album i've been listening to lately is actually ben harper um live from mars okay i saw ben harper uh, a few years ago open for yeah i think he might have been opening for dave matthews at like spac or something okay yeah i've seen ben harper more than any other artist really and uh, you know a lot of his um songs are very, very um like he does a couple songs that are like very pertinent for right now too. Mm. One of them is uh, "Like a King" and "I'll Rise," which is a Maya Angelou poem about racial oppression. Oh wow! So uh, that's a great one. Yeah, go listen to that album, uh, Ben Harper, "Live from Mars." It's a great album. I would bring that. Um, I've been. Uh, I always said I could live off of rice and beans. <laughs> so, <laughs> All right, cool. Um, I'll do that. My and, daughter could live uh, off of rice and beans, also for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And um, um, what was the other one? One one, one uh, drink. So I've been drinking. There's this local company in Portland. It's called Doctor Brews, and they make you know kombucha and tea and everything. So they make this blend. It's called Circulatory Blend. It's like a spicy tea, and I make iced tea out of it. So I would Ooh. bring my Circulatory Blend iced tea. Nice. Very cool. That almost sounds, you, you made that almost sound appealing. <laughs> Dude, you got to try it, man. Oh, boy. I don't know. Kombucha, it's a, you know, you got the, the mother and the, the scoby. It's, it's a little frightening. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it is. It is kind of, it's kind of gross. Uh, dude, this is the how first. Is, how is your family doing? I was going to say this is the first episode in weeks that we haven't talked about Corona, which has been a really a fantastic little break. I, unfortunately, having to talk about something even worse. But uh, no, everyone's doing well. I wanted to check out. You guys, you guys are are staying safe, staying sane. Everything going okay? Yeah, I think there's always a silver lining in things, and it's like spending more time with family and you know connecting yeah. with them instead of everybody kind of running around like a chicken. I think is um, you know we're we're talking about maybe going on a road trip here upcoming soon and nice. planning some things. So yeah, how old are your kids now? Fourteen and twelve. 
Oh my god, I, dude, it's unbelievable. I remember when they were just like little. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, nuggets, right? Yeah, I mean, I remember when Farrah was a baby. You know, uh, yeah, it's yeah. it's crazy. She's so big on on social media. It's great. Yeah, no, it's crazy how quickly it happened. So I know, in it's some wild. ways, it's nice to be able to like really connect with them and and yeah, hang no, out it, and you know, yeah, it's it's you know. Sometimes I need a little space, but for the most part, it's been it 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 has been yeah like a blessing in disguise to really you know because it does it goes by so fast and and you know it's nice to be able to sit back and and actually spend some yeah. you know I think they're they're they've had their fill of dad for you know the next several years but uh, you know for me it's it's been. No. Hey, you totally, seen totally. thanks so much. I, I know I know there's been a lot of demands on your time recently and you've been very gracious uh, with us and, oh, yeah. and everybody else. This has been really good. Stay safe and uh, I hope to see you on the trails real soon, man. Thank you, Jay. Appreciate it, man. So great to see you and thanks for having me on there. Yeah. Stay strong. Keep the foot on the gas. <laughs> Will do. Thanks to everybody right. for listening and until next time in the pain cave, keep putting one foot in front of the other. Broken down and Years have been long and tough, but I'm not dead. I'm happy now just to spend some time with friends and have a roof above my head. I'm not jaded, just been faded like a good old pair of jeans. Rusted like a proud old car that's drove a little too far and seen too much rain. As a child, I look about the night sky in wild wonderment. And ride the bus, feel upset to think of all the years I'd have to go through there. I was still young. I was still young. And I was still.